Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Season 5 of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa Jacobs of The Art of Ecology. During this season, I'm gathering nature enthusiasts, foraging lovers, and eco-warriors, all to discover more about the wonders of the great outdoors and some creative ways to make a positive difference both for our bodies and for the planet. Since this podcast season is all about foraging for wild edible plants and what we can create with those nutritious and delicious organisms. As a disclaimer, do not ingest any plant matter without being 100% sure of its identification. Use foraging field guides or go out on a hike with an expert, and that'll be really helpful in mitigating any sort of disasters that might come your way. Also, we'll talk a bit about medicinal information and herbal information. None of that is to be misconstrued as medical advice. If you have questions, always see your doctor or your primary care physician. This is just intended to educate you on the ways that nature can support our overall well-being and just to get you excited about the things that we can find in our natural ecosystems. So with that out of the way, this week, we are finally talking about what I've been hinting at all along, kind of up at the top. This episode is the fungi of the season, which is super exciting for me. Um, but we do need to talk a little bit more about the medical misconstruing, all that sort of stuff, because mushrooms are a little persnickety. So this week, we are talking about the turkey tail fungi, which is Tremedes versicolor. <laughs> And it is a lovely little fungi that is growing actively this time of year, which is really exciting. We often think of winter as this kind of barren time, but here we've got this fun little fungi that's growing. It does take a break kind of late winter and we'll start growing up again in May, but we can still be finding it throughout the winter season. The scientific name, when translated, really appropriately helps us identify this mushroom. Trimedes means paper thin, and versicolor means various colored, and this fungi is both of those things. The paper thin, it's one of the thinner types of polypores or shelf fungus that we might see. So if you see a real chunky, thick, shelf fungus, we know right away it's not a Tremetes versicolor. When we start to talk about fungi foraging, being able to identify what you see is vital. I often tell any of my foraging students that while getting a plant wrong can have some negative consequences for sure, getting a mushroom identification wrong is way bad and it can have potentially deadly consequences. For the most part, when you eat a bad berry, your body's gonna let you know and try to get rid of the poisonous plant out one end or the other. Maybe you'll feel nauseous for a little bit and 
you know, your stomach's going to be queasy until it settles. There are some deadly plants out there, but they're few and far between. And they're not really likely to be plants that you're mistaking an edible lookalike for. Once you eat a bad berry or a bad leaf, you're probably not going to make that mistake again. Now with fungi, while yes, you could just feel queasy for a bit, there are plenty of mushrooms out there that could be so toxic or poisonous to our bodies that they can kill you. I am not saying this to discourage you from getting out there and exploring your local forests or going and taking a look at the incredible fungi biodiversity within your garden. But I'm saying this to instill a deep respect and a desire to get your ID correct. We don't wanna be passive about this. Mushroom foraging can be so rewarding. And there's a ton of really delicious and nutritious mushrooms out there that are easy to identify and therefore are great for beginner mushroom hunters. So don't feel kind of overwhelmed or nervous, but feel the, the significance of needing to get your identification right. So what are these beginner mushrooms, right? That's why we're talking about turkey tail fungi. This fungi grows all over the world, all over North America, looks pretty distinct, and fortunately has very few, if any, poisonous lookalikes. Some people say that they don't have any poisonous lookalikes, and I'm not really willing to kind of make that sort of blanket statement, but just know that the ones that are going to be commonly found that look similar aren't going to be poisonous. And if you're preparing them the same way that you would prepare the turkey tail, they might be enjoyable as well. We'll talk a little bit about the false turkey tail, which is the primary lookalike. And of course that one's not poisonous either. It just kind of is. And sometimes fungi are labeled as quote unquote inedible, not due to their poisonous or toxic nature, but due to the fact that they're just kind of eh. And so why spend your time harvesting that when there's so many other good things out there? Regardless though of if mushroom ID is easy for you or not, please always consult a field guide and go through the whole identification process to confirm that your foraging experience will not turn ugly once you eat them. That's not what we're looking for here. The information, like I said up top, is purely for educational purposes and to inspire you to get outside and explore the natural world around you. Take a look at all of the incredible mushrooms and fungi that there are. And even if you're not comfortable actually harvesting, start to get used to the identification process. And once you gain these skills in mushroom ID, you'll feel more and more confident to actually forage and harvest. So with that, let's get back into turkey tail fungi identification. There are a couple of things that kind of across the board, you should always examine when identifying a mushroom. You wanna look at the underside of the mushroom. You wanna look at the top side, the cap. You wanna look at spores, bruising coloration, and habitat. So let's start with habitat since we need to figure out where to look 
before we can actually identify anything. The turkey tail is a decomposer or sap probe, meaning that it feeds only on dead or dying tree tissue. Maybe not trees, there's plenty of sap probes that will eat decaying leaf matter, decaying plants, but the turkey tails in particular really rely on deciduous hardwood trees. So think more like your oaks and your maples rather than your conifers like a pine or a hemlock. So heading to a moist, primarily deciduous forest filled with downed trees or stumps, that's going to be a great place to search for a turkey tail. So think nature centers, nature trails, uh, backyard woodlots, places like that. The turkey tail is going to be a nice little pop of color in the late fall to early winter when the leaves have fallen and all, you know, it's just the grayish brown bark, the leaves on the ground have faded from their reds and oranges to dingy browns. And we'll start to see these colorful overlapping or rosettes of turkey tails on the side of hardwood stumps. It's really cool, beautiful, beautiful. Now let's get to the underside of the cap. These mushrooms are polypores, meaning that instead of gills on the underside, they have many, many tiny little polka dots, which are pores. And yes, I mean like how our skin has pores. When you flip the top of the mushroom over, you will find that the whitish colored underside is dotted with thousands of these little holes and they are small. So if you have the tip of a ballpoint pen with you, you know, you're taking notes in your field guide, bring a pen or a pencil with you. And the tip of it is going to fit like three to five pores in that tiny little ballpoint. So you can kind of use that as an identification tool. The pores house the spores, which can be thought of as the quote unquote seeds of a mushroom. Mushrooms are not plants, so they don't grow in the same fashion as a plant would. However, there are many similar structures that we can use to help us relate to the various parts of a mushroom. The spores can be released when the mushroom is in dire straits, often when it is damaged or when environmental conditions aren't really great for the mushroom fruiting body itself. That fruiting body is what we see above ground. That's not the mushroom's quote unquote functional body though. That's just what produces the, the spores. The mushroom's functional body lives underground. So when we are going and picking mushrooms to harvest, to use for wildcrafting, think there's lots of beautiful mushrooms that create botanical dyes. You could use them for craft activity. I love having um, shelf brackets as actual, you can actually turn them into shelves on your wall. They're beautiful. You can do a lot. You're not actually harming the organism as a whole, its functional body is deep underground. Anyway, that fruiting body is going to release its spores, which fall to the ground and can create new little mushrooms, kind of like plants that have their seeds dispersed and germinate and create new little plants.
Mushrooms can also grow via fragmentation or through their underground parts. These parts can kind of be thought of similarly to root systems, plant root systems, but again, they're different, they're not roots, but these are called mycelium. Portions of the mycelium can be broken up into chunks and each new chunk can create a new fungal colony from those fragments. So mushrooms can grow in a wide variety of ways, which is also really cool. But that helps us as foragers feel like when we're going out picking mushrooms, we're not actually damaging the population of, of mushrooms in the area because the primary body is underground. Since the mushroom does release its spores when things happen to the fruiting body, we can use something called a spore print to identify the mushroom that we have. Picking up a mushroom, taking away that fruiting body, is definitely a thing happening to the mushroom as a whole, and it stimulates this spore release. So when we take a piece of paper and put our mushroom cap down on that piece of paper, you can wait a couple of hours to a day and then lift the cap back up and you'll see the spores that the mushroom has said, oh, oh my gosh, something happened to us. <laughs> Release our spores, let's reproduce hopefully. And it'll be arranged all beautifully on your piece of paper. Try not to nudge your mushroom or let you know pets or kids kind of bat the mushroom around. Your arrangement of the spores is important too. Plus, spore prints can make really beautiful works of art. But the color and the arrangement help us identify the mushroom since spores are unique to the mushroom that they came from. Just like in plant seeds, an acorn from an oak tree does not look the same as the seed from a dandelion. We can identify a plant in a very similar fashion. For the turkey tail, the spores are white. So be sure that if you're going to make your spore print that you use black construction paper or dark construction paper to take your print on. Otherwise, if you're just using your printer paper, you're not gonna see anything. When you use your black paper, you're going to see kind of like a fun speckling arrangement rather than distinct stripes. And that's since the mushroom has pores instead of gills. Now let's move from the underside of the cap to the top side. This mushroom grows on the side of trees like a shelf and it connects to the tree with the teeniest, tiniest little stalk-like structure. It's not gonna have a big long stem or stipe like other capped mushrooms do. Instead, it kind of just looks as if you have this flat piece of paper that's been glued to the side of the tree. They grow one on top of each other, overlapping, and they have concentric rings of color that are stunning. They can vary from green to yellow to brown to red to sometimes even like a bluish color. And these bands of color are what gives them their common name plus the shape overall. They kind of have a half circle or fan shape that looks like the tail feathers that are all spread out on a wild turkey. And the bands of color can also really remind you of the coloration of the feathers as well. 
The broad zones of color of these concentric greens, they can be very velvety or fuzzy. And the small tiny bands or small little sections can be hairless. However, overall, you will feel a velvety sort of texture. So that can be a great way to incorporate your sense of touch or feeling as you are trying to identify the mushroom. When you pick this turkey tail, and it's not as important for the turkey tail per se, but important for mushrooms overall. So might as well practice, get yourself used to this. Give the cap a little squeeze or a tear. The turkey tail is really thin, so any bruising is going to be difficult to see, but some mushrooms completely change colors or ooze liquid when they are damaged. So that damage can help you actually identify the mushroom species since not all species nor their lookalikes will react to damage in the same fashion. Your field guide though will tell you what to expect if you should expect something. Now we have kind of the general idea of what a turkey tail might look like or where it grows. So let's compare it to the false turkey tail. Both of them are fan-shaped. Both of them grow in similar habitats. And when you're first out, you may think that they have similar looking caps at first sight. However, on closer investigation, they're easy to distinguish between. First off, the false turkey tail's underside is a creamy or yellow color as compared to the bright white of the true turkey tail. The false turkey tail also has an underside that looks completely smooth. And that's because it's not actually a polypore like the true turkey tail is. It's a crust fungi. So they look different and behave differently. You'll definitely be able to see the pores in the turkey tail. Even though I mentioned they're really small, if you flip it over and you really look, you'll see those pores. Plus, now the top of the false turkey tail, it's not as exciting as the true turkey tail is. They might still have color, yeah, but they're often either just a yellowish orange, that's it, or they are very pale with dull bands of brown, orange, white. Sometimes you might see some greenish blue, but that's usually only if there is growth of algae on the top. Algae will rarely grow on the top of a turkey tail, so its presence is often a really good indicator of species. Plus, the false turkey tails are not velvety like the true turkey tail is. So again, if you're trying to identify mushrooms, bring that field guide with you to help you distinguish between lookalikes. Now, how do you prepare them? I do not recommend just crunching down on the mushroom itself. The leathery texture is not really pleasant, but I do recommend making a really nice infusion with the dried bits or powdered caps. So harvest your turkey tail, brush off any dirt or debris. You could use like a little toothbrush or a paintbrush. Pretend you're an archeologist and you're like dusting things off, right? 
get all that dirt off and allow your your paper thin mushrooms to dry. It's not going to take long because they are very thin. You can use them fresh if you're going to make an infusion. However, turkey tails are really, really prevalent, easy to forage for, that I personally find that drying them allows me to use them over long periods of time and add them to teas and soups as I want. I don't have to only pick two at a time and rush home to drink it immediately. I can dry it, use it in bulk. Once they're dried, break them into smaller pieces. They'll be a lot easier to break or cut apart. Or you can put them in an herb grinder, grind them down into powder, and add it to hot, but not boiling water. This is fairly typical for any type of herbal tea or preparation. Boiling water and that really excessive high heat breaks down and damages the nutrients, making the liquid less beneficial for our bodies. Still might taste good, but we're not getting the same nutrient quality. When the water is warm to hot though, it's enough to draw the oils or the nutrients out of your herbal matter, plant or mushroom. And there's some really, really beneficial polysaccharides that are found in mushrooms that can be infused into teas or soups. So if you're making a tea or a hot drink, I suggest removing the fungi after you've steeped it. Just prevent the bits from floating around. But if you're making a soup or a stock that might have a lot of other bits and stuff in it, think your carrots, maybe some kale, other, other types of fungi, your portobellos, you know, whatever you have, beef tips, I don't know. Ultimately, you might not notice the texture, that funny kind of leathery or harder texture. So it's up to you whether you can be bothered to remove it, kind of like a bay leaf, or if you want to keep it in. It's not going to damage you if you keep it in, but it's just, maybe you don't like the texture, you know? They do have a really nice earthy flavor that I find blends particularly well with hot chocolate. So turning your dried mushrooms into powder can be a great way to use your fungi less on a savory sort of soup side and more on a nice dessert side. So add it to your hot cocoa at night can be a really pleasant nightcap as you curl up with your dog, your husband, and a big blanket to watch more anime, or at least that's what I do. You can, you can drink what you like and do what you like while you're drinking what you like. Other than getting that feeling of reward and empowerment from drinking and ingesting stuff that we searched for, identified, and harvested ourselves, what's the benefit to drinking turkey tail infused liquid? Mushrooms overall are super high, like I said before, in something called a polysaccharide. And these polysaccharides support the brain and neurological health. Super cool. In the herbal world, there is something called the doctrine of signatures, which is kind of a way to predict and compare an herb's appearance 
or its signature to the benefits it provides our bodies. For example, hibiscus flowers with their super bright red color and extremely conspicuous reproductive structures way, way, way back when was thought to be good for cardiac health, for, for blood. That's what the red was. And even better for blood in women. The female reproductive structure is absolutely ginormous in a hibiscus. So combine blood and women's health, and it was thought to be really great for uterine and menstrual health and kind of have some implications for pregnant women of, you know, don't take hibiscus, don't drink hibiscus or ingest it because it could cause bleeding. And in a pregnant woman, you don't want bleeding, right? Lo and behold, since medieval times, science has been able to corroborate this. So it's not just some questionable information. Now, mushrooms with their underground mycelium look kind of like a neural network of a brain. So the doctrine of signatures would indicate that mushrooms are good for brain health. And guess what? Studies have shown that cognition, memory, and mental health and well-being improve when you regularly eat mushrooms. Weird, I know. And I will also state this that I don't 100% prescribe to the doctrine of signatures. There are a lot of statements made about herbs through the doctrine of signatures that I find to be a little bit of a stretch or really unintuitive. And the only way that you would know this doctrine is if you kind of worked backwards and you knew what the plant actually did for your body. And then you were like, oh, well, I can see that in the in the texture of this plant. And you're just like, what really you could? Eh. So don't take the doctrine of signatures at face value. However, it is a really fun little way to get more familiar with your organism, to really make some detailed observations and learn about making hypotheses or predictions about, okay, this is what this plant looks like, feels like, smells like, tastes like. And now how can I create a hypothesis based around what this plant or fungi might do for my body? Again, it's a fun way to interact on another level. But still, always make sure you know what you're putting in your body and how it might interact with your just general constitution, any medicine you're taking, any health impacts or issues that you may have, because the doctrine of signatures is not always, it's not always, you know, top tier information. It's just there for fun. But on top of the brain boost that perky tail mushrooms do give you, they also do more than that. They improve overall immune system functioning because they have a high level of antioxidants. Again, we're finding that a lot of things that are growing around this time of year, the, the fall into early winter, have a ton of antioxidants, and this helps our bodies maintain our immune system, which kind of starts to shut down or lower 
during the winter months when we'd really rather be hibernating, right? We'd rather our bodies kind of shut off until the spring comes back around and we ramp immune system back up again. So for what it's earth, each person who can get outside this December searching for your turkey tails will not only find a new way to enjoy the season, which may have originally been thought to be a barren, boring sort of season, but you'll also be boosting your neurological and immune power. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology. Next episode is the last episode of season five. So this was episode nine. Next episode will be the last one, episode 10. And I'm excited to announce that I will be taking a season break to welcome our first child into the world. My husband and I are really looking forward to introducing our new little one to all of the incredible things that nature holds. And I am considering, considering, recording a future podcast season about ways to instill curiosity and wonder for the natural world, how to read the landscape, things like that, in babies through adults. Um, so I would discuss with guests about development, psychology, teaching pedagogies, ways to incorporate natural environmental education into daily life, regardless of age, featuring all types of guest teachers, naturalists, scientists, all sorts of things like that. But honestly, I need a break when the baby comes, which could literally be at any time now. I've been block recording these episodes since my due date is right around the corner. So in the interim, let me know what sort of environmental or nature art education you might be interested in for future seasons, hopefully starting back up in the spring or summer of 2024. So if you're listening now, um, I'm, I'm getting ready to kind of shut down for the winter, um, but I'm looking for new ideas. If you enjoyed this week's episode though, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore many more wonderful facets of the ecosystems that we are a part of. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. And for more tips and eco-inspiration, you can find me at theartofecology.com, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and I'm also on Patreon where you might be watching these podcast episodes, the video versions, which have great diagrams and images to help you kind of uh, follow along and learn more visually. With that, I will see you next time on For What It's Earth. Bye.